From Blue Ridge Public Radio, this is The Porch, a production of BPR's news team. I'm Cass Harrington. Since we started this program last summer, we've produced episodes centered on racial justice movements, policing, the insurrection on the U.S. Capitol, all of this and more, while also navigating an unprecedented global pandemic. This episode is going to be a little different. We invited listeners to submit funny stories from the past year, and we've compiled them into this episode and online. It's a community gathering that we're calling Viral Humor. We've all felt it. The awkwardness of talking or shouting at a cashier through layers of masks and plexiglass. A toddler running around in the background of someone's Zoom call. The stinging sensation of gobs of hand sanitizer seeping into your chapped hands. That's not to say, of course, that the pandemic is funny. Mm -mm, No. COVID-19 hurt all of us. Many of us lost loved ones, struggled with isolation, lost our jobs, put dreams on hold. And it's not over. We're very much still in this. But if this show aims to do anything, it's to say, hey, it's okay if you're not okay. And it turns out laughter, a little comedy, can help us cope. It's really the ultimate expression of human resilience. First up, we're going to hear from an expert. David Perdue is an Atlanta-based comedian. He's performed on Kevin Hart Presents, Heart of the City on Comedy Central, and he's appeared at the Laugh Your Asheville Comedy Festival. He'll be returning to Asheville later this month to perform with Model Face Comedy. I'm David Perdue. I'm a comedian out of Atlanta, Georgia, uh, and I'm, uh, I'm excited about doing this interview. <laughs> awesome. Well, David... I'm so excited to have you joining uh, our conversation. And so since we've been gathering up stories from across the region, across Western North Carolina, and we'll include you in as our Southern neighbor, um, what was kind of like an awkward, cringy moment that you experienced in the past year? Um, So I, um, like most comedians, I ended up uh, in order to try to sharpen skills or stay, stay sharp, I uh, did some Zoom shows, which I I don't know. I don't know why we were asked to do those. (laughs) I thought everybody, I don't know why we became essential workers, but (laughs) I thought that was weird. But I did them anyway. And one of the things I thought I was going to escape doing Zoom shows was the post-show meetup. Um, But no, that did not happen. I did a show once uh, early. So wait a second, wait a second. For you, actually, like Zoom was almost a little bit of a relief. Like you got to avoid the awkward audience member coming up after the show and trying to small talk you yeah like and the thing is i don't even mind that all the time because sometimes you get like a lot of good like oh that's that's an interesting thing you said or the good feedback most most of the time but this time it was like oh what did i get myself into so uh a lot of material i have you know, it it has to. I'm just I observe a lot of things, but a lot of it has definitely has to do with being a black man in the South, right? And so I talk about race a bit. Um, and it was a post show interview, and it, it was that interview. It was like a post show meeting greet that like I guess people paid extra money to like meet with the the performers, and it was just it was a, like a VIP situation. Yeah, <laughs> I was like, who needed this? But I guess you know at the time we all needed a little something different. I guess so. Yeah. Um, it was nobody really was there, but it was two people and one left, and it ended up being just me, uh, the headliner, and a uh, a, a very well meaning middle aged white woman who. Began to um, 
just ask a lot of deep questions about race and what was going on in the country. And this was post, I feel like this was like post, uh, you know, uprising. This was post Minneapolis, this was post a lot of those things. And so a lot of people were asking questions, which, you know, God bless, we're trying to figure things out. But her questions then became to center around like, listen, I am a mother of a black child. And I was like, oh no. <laughs> Oh, you think I have the answers, answers. <laughs> and uh, that was very, uh, I, I felt responsible. And that's a weird feeling during a pandemic to be responsible for somebody's child that you'll never see. Well, that kind of, uh, <laughs> I'm sorry that happened. <laughs> yeah. No, it's um, fine. But it kind of like connects with like where the direction of this show is like comedy as therapy and for better or for worse, this woman looked at you as a source of wisdom and guidance. Yeah. Yeah. I I mean, I found that a lot of moments, this is not the first time I've had stuff like this happen. Normally it's just like they can read my, they can feel where I'm at cause I'm in front and I can like get a better understanding, but it was just so, I guess I was, I was not expecting that in the zoom show and then then i remember her camera showed like this weird like nexus of you know those things like those like when people are trying to figure out who did the crime and there's there's a bunch of strings and post-it notes and she had those behind her and she was trying to explain the pandemic and where it came from and all this other stuff and i just remember being like oh we gotta get that child out of that house we gotta get that kid we gotta free that kid i gotta stay in touch with this woman to get her out, because this, this can't be going well. Her mom has no idea what to do with her. And I immediately was like, I already know her mom has no idea to do. If she doesn't know what to do with her in a social sense, definitely is probably having struggles with her hair. You know what I mean? So I just was like, this this child needs, she needs some help. So what what was what was your advice for that woman? Honest, I'm, I, I have general advice when it comes to a lot of things that matter. And I, usually it's like, listen, you know, like, listen, really listen was not trying to find the answers, but just trying to understand where people were coming from. I think that's super important. But then I also said, like, I, hey, man, get your daughter around some black people. Maybe, because that way you don't have to have all the answers. <laughs> there might be someone else that's, like, actually there. And they're like, hey, I thought about this. Maybe this will help. So that's kind of where I, I try to lead it. I try to be very sweet about it because it can't, I, and I, normally I am try to be sweet. I try to be sweet about these type of conversations because when people are genuinely trying to understand things, the last thing they need is like, what do you, what do you not understand? It's like, no, that's why I'm asking you, <laughs> you know? <laughs> right. And so, uh, you know, I get how hard it is sometimes to be very like, I'm going to listen. Cause it's very easy to be like, well, you Google it. You know, people say that a lot, like Google it, but like, have you seen Google? That will lead you anywhere. <laughs> so I don't want people Googling things. Right. And well, and also listening like implies not knowing in some cases, yeah. like allowing someone else to share. And I think that's that's humility saying like, OK, I'm going to shut up and let this person take up space. <laughs> yeah. That's so hard for us as Americans to just be like, I'm going to not be the center of attention and then I'm going to learn something. Two things we don't do very well. We don't listen and we sure as hell do not try to learn things. Mm. Yeah. So, yeah. Well, you know, I think that I, I want to talk more about your 
work in the past year, you said you it shifted a little. You did some, or a lot. You did some Zoom yeah. some Zoom performances. Yeah. Did your comedy touch on some of the weirdness of COVID life, uh, like a sweaty lip under your mask, or yeah. you know the the can't, uh, can't shake your hand? I'm gonna elbow bump you. <laughs> yeah, I mean we. I mean I lost all my cool handshakes. That was a big loss early on. I, I'm known for cool handshakes. Uh, not really, uh, but I lost them. I like to say it. I did. Um, so, yeah, I mean, definitely there was the, you know, the whole my mask is fogging up my glasses thing. That definitely was a thing. You know, I definitely tried to touch on some of the things. And then later on in the year, because it was election season as well. So it was just a lot going on. And it's an election season in Georgia. And I have the exact same name as a guy running for senator. And so my DMs were uh, incredibly uh, terrible. They were just the worst. Like, I wouldn't wish that on my worst enemy. It's just the people messaging me about things that even he couldn't change. Like, no one, they, they, that senator couldn't help you with potholes. That's not his job. And I'm getting messages from people like, there's a pothole on 14th Street. That, I was like, well, then, I don't know, call somebody lower on the chain than the guy, you know? So um, it definitely informed that. I got involved. Like, I ended up producing a comedy show that had uh, now Senator Reverend Warnock on there and I like just did this thing was like him and I wanted to put him and uh comedian George Wallace in the conversation and so I you know we got those two to just talk about being good old Georgia boys wow and stuff like that and we had W. Kamal Bell was on and uh Hari Kanabola was on uh Aparna and Ancello was like we just had this like night of comedy slash you know politics and that was that was the highlight of for me of the the pandemic because I just helped put that together and hosted it and that was a lot of fun well, part of this show, what we want to kind of get at is like dealing with moments of grief or trauma. Yeah. And where comedy fits into that, if at all. Some people might think laughing in a pandemic is irreverent. Where do you, where do you stand on it? I listen. One thing the pandemic taught me is like, if you are not actively looking for your joy, you are in trouble. <laughs> You're in trouble. Uh, so I, I do think that, you know, hey, there's some people who can say, like, laughing at these traumatic things are, you know, are problematic. Personally, I'm like, I don't know. I don't know how people get through things without laughter. You know, I don't understand, like, how that's possible. I'm not saying everything has to be the funniest thing, but something should bring, like, a little smirk to your face. It's just like, oh, OK, that was that was good. Uh, so personally, I, I think we have to. You know, I think that's it's because I think it's laughter is like one of these involuntary human emotions that like if you don't give into, you're kind of like blocking a very human emotion. And and it's also a very connecting kind of feeling. And so, uh, yeah, I just think that it was super important that we laugh as best we could during these times. So, like, I was, you know, I I, I got good laughs in for sure. Well, <laughs> I appreciate you talking about race up front, you know, the, yeah. the middle-aged white woman approaching you after a show. And <laughs> and I, I wanted to ask you, you know, thinking back on American culture, yeah. black comedians throughout history like Richard Pryor or Chris Rock or Dave Chappelle, um, for many audiences, they kind of they broke barriers of what's considered taboo or off the table. Right. Do you think there's something about being a person of color that makes controversial or sensitive topics easier to access uh yeah it, we're not as sensitive to it <laughs> because it's not like it's it's our lived it's like how can i be sensitive about my right arm it's my right arm you know like i grew up with it i know it well it, it is a part of my everyday life uh and so i think kind of making it taboo or whatever is really just kind of attacking 
the structures that it, like it tries to uphold. And I think so. I think that it's it, it. You know, for me, I wouldn't say it came natural, but it kind of was like, why would I not talk about this? Very. It's almost like comedians are like the kids in the room. You ever see if you are on a kid in a room and like there's somebody walks in the room and they have a mole on their like their forehead and you just hope that kid doesn't say, hey, that's a mole. But like <laughs> I feel like that. that's what being black in America is. It's like. Y'all don't see this? And everybody's like, you're not supposed to say nothing about it. And it's like, no, no, no. I refuse to. There's, we all see this. We all right? see, we're not going to pretend. I, we can't pretend. Yeah. And I don't think any, I, I think there's no freedom in that. You know, there's no, there's no connection in that. Just pretending and going along. Yeah. So I definitely think that's part of it. Yeah. How did comedy get you through the pandemic? Other than like getting shows, like, did you catch any performances yourself? Or were there moments that like, like comedy just like, let the valve release? I think I definitely didn't. I don't think I realized it at the time. But like, I kind of like begrudgingly did some Zoom shows early on because I, you know, but I, I realized like I did it because I I missed people. Like we all did. I just missed people i don't know if these jokes that i was doing then were great or not but like also knew like the bar is very low <laughs> the bar is very low and so i just went at it with this like i'm just gonna share my heart what i think is funny and go from there but uh i mean i don't think i caught many like i didn't spend a lot i tried not to spend time that i did need to on the computer like watching zoom shows or anything like that um but you know i i just feel like it just i was around like my family so according to my family, so I was just, I was in a space where like they were bringing me joy and laughter and they're all funnier than me anyway. So I really kind of tapped into that and, uh, you know, allowed myself to just kind of chill, <laughs> you know, uh, but humor was definitely like at the, at the base of a lot of it. Cause there's no way you can get through this, a weird, ridiculous, you know, devastating year like last year without that. I don't think. It's really funny to me how. You know, listeners in the program are going to be hearing stories from from across our broadcast area, and they all kind of follow this similar pattern, like life is normal, whatever normal looks like in a pandemic, and then something like, huh, (laughs) happens. And the person who's telling the story gets to decide, like, no, this is funny, I'm going to call this out. And then there's this huge, almost like communal release that happens. But I and I think like, that's kind of like a similar pattern of a of a joke like you know there's there's the build up and the tension and then the the punchline and then like like you you there's mm-hmm. it's physical you feel it yeah i was telling a friend of mine recently a comedian friend of mine about how one thing the pandemic taught me is that whether you're a comedian a preacher a any t- type of communicator we're all doing the exact same thing which is we're facilitating community you know, we do it in a in a humorous way, or the attempt is to be humorous. But it's it the at the base, it's like, what is a thing that brings us all together? Because I used to say this even before the pandemic, but it's even more true now. There's no reason for anybody to show up to a comedy show, right? There's zero. I know it sounds bad as someone trying to promote a comedy show, but what I mean is like, there's plenty of entertainment anywhere else outside of that. So w- what I realized was that. What we're what people are looking for when they pull up is not necessarily like entertainment, even though that's going to happen. It's like, hey, I'm a human being who needs to experience something with other human beings. And this I, I enjoy laughter. So I'm, I'm really coming for the experience of community. And so I feel like the best comedians tap into something that weaves through all the community in there. Right. Like whoever's in there, they can touch on all of that. And it brings people together to make this very like there's no reason everybody should laugh at one thing at a time. 
You know what I mean? Like people have so many different backgrounds. So it makes zero sense that that happens anytime I do. Like I'm always mesmerized. Like everyone's laughing right now. Like it, it, I, something hits me because it's like this doesn't make any sense. This is this is magical. And so I just try to like bring that energy to the stage. Like, hey, I just want to connect with you. I'm a human being just trying to connect with you and other human beings. Because in this crazy thing we call life, we absolutely need to find ways to be connected. And here I am trying to make that happen. Well, and and speaking of in-person shared communal laughing experiences, you're going to be performing here in Asheville at the end of the month. Uh, anything anything COVID related folks can re- expect? <laughs> Definitely. Listen, I I mean, I'll be honest, like I you talk about trauma. So like I went to two or well, in the past year and a half, I had to bury both my grandfather and my grandmother. My grandmother, like, a couple weeks ago. So there's definitely some... But, I, again, those are things that, like, this, they're sad, but they're also, like, like they provided a lot. <laughs> Let's say like that. Uh, but I think they're also experiences that we've all shared and it's loss. So I'll definitely... Talk, I want to, you know, I'm going to talk about that. Um, you know, I, I, pro- I produced during the early... In the, or last... Or early this year, I did a show with a, a poet. I produced a show called Double Consciousness myself and a poet and we did it and that produced a lot of material that had to do with the past year so i'm coming in with all these like some older but like fresher ideas because at the end of the day these shows are about uh you know giving that's what i realized like i i used to want to take from audiences like give me your last but now it's like i'd like to give you something so i just try to present what i'm doing now as like a gift and then hope that people you know want to receive it well david Thank you. Thank you so much for talking with me. Thank you for having me. This was fun. Good luck to you. I hope hope being back on stage treats you well. It's so far. Listen, I'm be honest. I, I. It sounds gonna sound weird, but like I, I, I. It has to treat me well because there's nothing. You know what I mean? Like there's what were we doing before? Like no one can hurt me now. I'm very bulletproof when it comes to just being on stage and those emotions. I'm like guys. I'm just here for the fun. And so, you know, I feel very good about that going forward. And I'm very excited to to get to Asheville and be able to hopefully give something of value. You're listening to The Porch on Blue Ridge Public Radio. I'm Cass Harrington. You just heard from Atlanta-based comedian David Perdue. He'll be performing at Asheville Beauty Academy on July 31st. We're going to take a quick break, but when we come back, we're going to listen to stories submitted by listeners from across Western North Carolina. It's part of our special viral humor episode. Stay with us. You're listening to a special viral humor episode of The Porch, a production of BPR's news team. I'm Cass Harrington. Earlier on in today's show, we heard from a professional stand-up comedian, Now we're going to shift gears and listen to stories submitted by you all. Listeners from across the region opened up and sent us their humorous moments from the past year. First up, Allison Fields is a storyteller who grew up in Asheville. Here's her take on an itch to travel early on in the pandemic. After spending not quite six months alone in a house entirely by myself, no husband, no kids, no whatever, a couple hundred miles away from my family with a grandmother that I loved who was dying, who I was dying to see but couldn't, I decided to make a really irresponsible decision during a plague year. And I made friends with my best friend in Asheville to drive to Brooklyn and spend five days with my best friend in New York. Her roommate had temporarily decamped to Illinois, and so she had an apartment to herself. We decided to all have COVID tests, both swabs and antibodies. 
We quarantined for 14 days before travel, and even though we were all aware of New York State's mandatory 14-day quarantine for all of the states in the red zone, um, North Carolina plus 34 others and Puerto Rico, we were going to be careful, but not so careful that we wouldn't tell anybody. I mean, we were technically kind of going to break the law, but it was a, kind of an edge case. At the time, the only place I could get a COVID test for an asymptomatic patient in Orange County was in a high school parking lot. So I got to the testing site about 15 minutes before. There were already a thousand cars in line waiting to start. About 45 minutes in, I realized I had less than a quarter of a tank of gas in my car, and I was stuck in the middle of three lines of cars on a sunny July day with about a 107 degree heat index and an air conditioner on the fritz and no water. And about five minutes later, my gas light started to flicker and I decided to open the windows and mask up and sit inside. I was going to be fine, no problem, to preserve what gas I had left. And then an hour and a half after that, still in line, I started to feel dizzy. So whenever I started to feel dizzy, I would turn the car back on for a moment and then turned it off. And so I finally flagged down a volunteer who was handing out census-branded swag bags, which felt weird, but fine. And she flagged down a health department volunteer, who flagged down a fireman, who flagged down a policeman, who finally came with the gas can, because it was not only me who was running out of gas. Finally, I got swabbed. I went home, and I had takeout, and that night I felt terrible. I had chills. I had a headache. I felt fatigue, and I woke up the next morning, and I was like, this is it. I definitely have COVID because you know I've just left the house for the first time in months to get a COVID test and this makes entirely too much sense and this is the universe telling me that I shouldn't go to New York. So I call my doctor and my doctor's like, well, it's probably not COVID, but you know, if you have a hard time breathing or you start running a fever, then call back. So hours that day I spent worrying about whether or not I should start working on my will before I ended up on a ventilator. And finally around five o'clock, I had a can of chicken noodle soup and felt immediately better. I called my friend in New York and she was like, I think you were probably just dehydrated from sitting in a hot car yesterday. And I was like, okay, fine. So I guess that's off the checklist. So two days later, I get a negative COVID test and we decide to go to New York. So my friend from Asheville comes down and we pack up and we try to pretend like it's normal and not an ethical quandary that we're doing this and not that we're bad people. And she was like, you know, there's been a hurricane and civil unrest and there's a plague. The worst thing that might happen to us is we'll be embarrassed by people finding out that we went to New York buying through during a pandemic. And I was like, okay, that sounds fine. So the next morning, we get in the car, I put on the happiest playlist I know, and we take off to Virginia. And about four and a half hours in, just shy of DC, somewhere around Quantico, we pull off to switch drivers. And when I do that, I notice the New York Times has put an alert on my phone that says that New York City is now putting checkpoints on the bridges and tunnels into the five boroughs. And I look at my friend and I'm like, this seems like another sign that this is a bad idea. I try to call my friend in New York and I can't get a hold of her and my friend from Asheville calls her husband and we drive another exit up to a Burger King and we order two Impossible Whoppers and sit in the parking lot trying to mull over the moral quandary that we find ourselves in. 
Finally, I get a hold of my friend from New York who was like, you know, you guys are probably fine. And I knew that no matter what decision that I made, that I was going to disappoint her because I knew I was going to make the boring, responsible choice. And I was going to do the responsible thing during a pandemic. And my friend told me it was fine and it wasn't my fault. But I hated making decisions because I felt like I always made the sad one. My friend in the car with me tried to hide her disappointment and humor and said, you know, 50 years from now, we'll tell our grandchildren that we traveled in the middle of a pandemic to sit in a Nordstrom Rack parking lot and have an impossible whopper during a plague. And I said, well, that's fine, but it's just not quite the same. So we turned around and drove home. I kept thinking all the way home that I'd made the right decision, but I couldn't stop being sad about it, and I started crying about it, and even when we got back to the house, I was still crying about it, because even though I had made the ethical decision and the smart decision in the middle of a pandemic, all I could think about was my friend alone in her apartment and all the things that we wouldn't do and all the things that we wouldn't say and the missed opportunities and lost chances and crushed dreams that was 2020 writ large. That night on a Zoom call, we talked to her and behind her I could see gold balloons and I could see fresh flowers and I could see the bottle of champagne that she put out for us to get there even though we weren't going to get there. And she said it was okay and I knew that she thought it was okay, but I want to tell you now, I'm pretty sure that I made the right decision to turn around and come back, but it didn't feel like the right decision then and it doesn't even feel like the right decision now, a year later when we can all travel and see each other and hug again. And when I think back on it, it just feels like regret and grief and one more totally necessary but painful concession in a year of concessions. And it encapsulates that shadow-haunted, pre-vaccine world of nothing left to look forward to and loneliness and frustration and hopelessness. You know, it feels just like 2020. That was Allison Fields, a writer and moth story slam champion living in Carborough, North Carolina. You're listening to The Porch, and we're sharing stories submitted from listeners for this week's viral humor episode. What I find striking is that in nearly all of the stories we've received, they share a sort of similar tension. It's like this internal battle with anxiety, uncertainty, discomfort, then something like a comment or a glitch, a mishap, shifts the energy. And there's this release, like the punchline of a joke. It brings about a moment of levity, kind of like when you light a flame in a cave. It's so luminous. That dark cave, that's, that's been the pandemic. Rather than keep trying to describe it, I'll let Colette Mock start us off. COVID changed the way we perceive everything. My... Well, this is different. Moment happened last October. I'd had COVID that went into pneumonia. I tested negative for COVID, so I knew I wasn't shedding virus when I went to a small business in Hendersonville to pick up an order. Of course, I was still coughing my full head off from the pneumonia. Everyone in the store was giving me stink eye, and I assured them, don't worry, it's not COVID, it's just pneumonia. Everyone nodded and went back to shopping, and then we all started to laugh. What a world when it's just pneumonia is good news. Yes, this is Thomas Chapman. At 76, I was lucky enough to be one of the first Brevardians to receive the COVID-19 vaccination. On January 13th, 
One week after the insurrection at the Capitol, I entered the outside door to the community room of the Transylvania Regional Library and was vaccinated. As I walked to the recovery waiting area, I noticed two police officers, one sitting on either side of the door to the main part of the library. I asked if they had just been vaccinated, and one of them replied, No, we are here in case a mob of irate octogenarians storm the clinic demanding the vaccine. I thought it was a nice story. Goodbye. Last fall, I was checking out at a supermarket using the self-service aisle, and I saw a man who seemed to be following all the precautions. He was masked and wore medical-type gloves. He was clearly aware of the CDC guidelines. He scanned his groceries and put them in the bagging area, then tried to open a plastic bag without success. So he pulled down his mask and licked a finger. (laughs) I almost said something. That was Cecil Bothwell from Asheville, Thomas Chapman from Brevard, and Colette Mock from Hendersonville. They shared their funny moments from the pandemic for this special viral humor episode of The Porch. I'm Cass Harrington. We're going to wrap up our listener submissions with a story that also has a soundtrack. Emmy Springlemeyer and Colton Sankey are therapists and musicians living in Asheville. They performed a song early on in the pandemic called Quarantine Mob, and it turned out to be a sort of therapy. I'll let them take it from here. My name is Emmy Springlemeyer, and I'm, I live in Asheville, and uh, I work at Universal Mental Health. My name is Colton Sankey. I'm a singer-songwriter, and um, I work as a program director for the Psychosocial Rehab Program. Well, when the pandemic hit, it, it shut down everything. There were no bars. There were no nowhere to to listen to music, nowhere to play music. I would just lost my job to the to the pandemic. And so um, we decided to get together at a, a downtown parking garage. We became one of the... Our, our little uh, garage band there was the only game in town for a little while. We were the most famous band playing in Asheville for that night <laughs> anyway. The biggest um, act in town. And so we improvised a song called Quarantine Mob. I, I had been gigging regularly and was used to playing in some bar venue every weekend you know doing pursuing my passions and every I was kind of all taken away and this was the first real opportunity that I had to to get that out and of course the great thing about getting that kind of cathartic energy out with ME is you're, you're gonna laugh while you're doing it To, to take that experience and, you know, turn it into a song. So we were just howling. I mean, the funny thing is that it was an empty parking garage, mostly. And uh, we had it to ourselves, and it became this giant megaphone for us to basically scream our frustrations at what was happening during the, the pandemic. And so that little night that we spent there led to us doing an impromptu performance through the crowds at the Black Lives Matter protests the next couple weeks after that, playing We Shall Overcome and other improvised songs through the protests. And then it led to us 
writing songs together on a regular basis. In the last year since then, Colton and I together have either written or improvised 70, 80 songs. So I made a list the other day and it's crazy. It's extensive. It's crazy. <laughs> this time that we had together and our experiences writing and working together has led to us creating a class here at uh, the PSR program that we call Street Poetry. We encourage our members to use what they've learned from Michael's other writing classes about prose and meter and all sorts of things and applying it to their own personal lives, feelings, thoughts, and experiences. Now in this class, they are assisted in coming together with you know words and basically we get handed a sheet of words from the members who come here and Emmy and I turn it into a, a song. And the, the, the joy of being able to watch someone have their, who may, might not have any kind of musical experience or background realize that they themselves can be and are songwriters. And being able to hear their thoughts and feelings turn into music in front of them uh, has been just an amazing process. The joy of it is that, that people can realize that they have a lot of creativity inside them and it just needs to be unleashed. It's kind of like, I mean, going back to the, to the night in, in the parking garage in downtown Asheville, people just need to find a megaphone because they've got stuff inside and you might try to lock people down in quarantine, you might try to lock everyone in their houses, but if you can find a way, you find a megaphone somewhere, everyone has, has something inside that they can just release and bust out and just, just scream to the world. And, and there's a therapeutic benefit of that. It made me feel a lot better in the first weeks of quarantine to realize that, okay, I can get out, I can still scream to the moon how frustrating the quarantine is. Fellow human beings can can help each other by creating opportunities for people to find their megaphone. That was Emmy Springlemeyer and Colton Sankey. They work at Universal Mental Health Services in Asheville, where they help patients write their own songs as a form of therapy. And therapy, a little relief, is kind of the purpose of this show. We're calling viral humor. We're going to take a quick break, but when we come back, we're going to hear from a professor at UNC Chapel Hill who teaches a course on the ethics of stand-up comedy. Don't go anywhere. From BPR News, you're listening to The Porch. I'm Cass Harrington. So far for this viral humor episode, we've heard from comedians, storytellers, therapists, and just everyday folks trying to get through this strange moment. To wrap up this week's show, we're going to kind of bring the train back into the station. This next guest is going to help us unpack what it means to laugh in the midst of a pandemic or in the wake of something traumatic. It's not a new phenomenon, but is it ever too soon? When does a joke go too far? Michelle Robinson is an associate professor of American studies at the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill, where she teaches a course on the ethics of stand-up comedy. So just to kind of lay out a framework for the conversation, how do you describe ethical comedy? What is it? I think comedy and its most exciting forms, particularly stand-up comedy, can help us to develop lives that support human flourishing and encourage creativity. However, 
there are many places uh, when we encounter a comedy um, that can be brutal, hurtful, that can test boundaries in ways that are harmful to individuals. And negotiating those types of comedy, finding how they contribute to our culture and how they might participate in the subordination or more likely the degradation of some people is a crucial ethical question that we need to confront when we look at comedy. It's complex. There's a lot to unpack there. It's way more than just cracking a joke. <laughs> Absolutely. So where where do you draw the line? When when does a joke go too far? I've found often that saying a joke goes too far and stopping there isn't sufficient. So pulling apart a particular joke, looking at the minute details, who is enunciating the joke? Who's the audience for that joke? Does it create a community that's forged around an understanding of a joke as um, told in jest, um, as pulling together people who have experienced depression, even if it draws on a stereotype? Or is it, is it spoken by an outsider? So those would be some of the concerns I would have when I look at a joke, which might seem to be going too far, but might have intentions that we don't understand at first glance. So here we are right now, in addition to talking about who is delivering uh, a joke or a moment of levity, uh, we need to be thinking about context. So we're coming down from the height of a global pandemic. Restrictions have been loosened up. People are gathering again, maybe even going to stand-up nights. Uh, but we're still in a pandemic, and, and many of us are still grieving. The wounds are still fresh. Can or should comedians crack jokes about this? Should, should we be laughing in this moment? I think dark humor uh, always appeals to some people. And dark humor can also offer us ways of expressing grief and accessing it um, that we might not be able to do in ordinary conversations in everyday life or in conversations about grief or speaking to a family. And sometimes comedy, even dark comedy that responds to moments of tragedy in individuals' lives, um, tragedies that came about in the last year because of the pandemic, can still be a really important way of, of coping. I was thinking back to a comedian in New Orleans who told me that very shortly after Hurricane Katrina, it was difficult to go back to work. And a lot of comedians were fearful about <laughs> standing in front of a microphone again. Like, how do we make fun of this or make light of this? Our, our community feels shattered. So as a, as a scholar of American studies, do you know of other examples in American culture or history where comedy in a moment of grief was important or healing? Because in this case, the comedian said it was hard, but once I went back, it felt like it was a moment of shared healing. There are definitely comedians who have seemed to go too far and have offended individuals. I'm thinking of Anthony Jeselnik, for example, who posted um, tweets right after the Boston Marathon, um, which outraged a number of people. But there are folks in the wake of September 11th who really had um, a lot of there was a lot of impetus to, to bring forth comedy as a way of exploring what had happened and the consequences that some people faced and other people didn't, and to really apply a critical eye to the structure um, of American relations with other countries and the effects of the tragedy here. Any comedians in particular that did it well or any examples that you can think of? Uh, one comedian um, 
who belonged to a kind of broader group called the uh, Axis of Evil Comedy Tour, um, and then also participated in a comedy tour that introduced um, Muslim comedians all over the South to Southern audiences as Dean Obadala, and he spoke very frankly about um, mental health and the impact of suddenly being seen as an Arab American and the kind of prejudice he encountered in the wake of September 11. And I think it was very eye-opening, but also kind of sensitive and appeal to a broad audience as well as an audience who shared ethnic identities with him. Um, so I think that was extremely powerful and uh, helped to change the way that people looked at who, who's the enemy here. You know, who among us is American and should be treated equally under the law? It's it's really important to note in this conversation that, you know, American culture is constantly shifting and it doesn't exist in a vacuum. And a lot of times race comes into play into the conversation and whether things are appropriate. And in the case of COVID-19, it hasn't impacted everyone in our country the same way. You know, communities of color have experienced higher rates of infection and death. Does being able to laugh right now also speak to privilege, like race or social class within a society, or who's, who is allowed or positioned to ethically laugh? Well, the inequalities experienced by individuals who belong to communities of color in this country, I mean, it's not part of a new phenomenon. It stretches back through the 21st and 20th centuries, and even before that, obviously. Um, so there's a long history of jokes that community members, for example, members of the African-American community and comedians that have really represented and spoken to them, have created a type of comedy that, that negotiates those kinds of troubles and difficulties and experiences of oppression. And that uh, there was a moment this year where it was very important to revive those um, experiences. And then in the wake of George Floyd's murder, we have individuals like Dave Chappelle offering a kind of striking and powerful performance um, that drew people just by watching it on YouTube to recognize some of his experiences. On the other hand, I think comedians uh, who don't personally have experience um, with the kind of tragedies that are taking place, they need to approach those topics with some caution. I don't believe personally that the topic is off limit, but you know, as with you know, jokes about, say, sexual assault, um, or rape, a comedian is able to approach a subject that is distant to them if they have something important to say, if they have a consideration and sensitivity towards individuals who are more harshly, um, have harsher and more painful experiences. Um, so it has to do with the kind of creativity and meaningfulness of a joke to participate in a larger cultural dialogue. That's so interesting what, what you're saying, like, a joke can serve so many purposes as a means of empowerment, of unifying, or criticism, cultural criticism to draw attention to something. And those are all things that I feel humanity, American culture is craving right now. I agree with you. And there's just been um, incredible uh, comedy that's come out in the last year, and um, I'm thinking more specifically about a show that some people might find controversial, but it's fascinating, and that's HBO's Pause with Sam Jay. Sam Jay did release a stand-up special in the past year, um, and you know, there were kind of mixed responses to it, but Sam Jay is a kind of extraordinary comedian coming on the beat, um, has 
powerful, outrageous, and exciting comments to make and the social critiques to offer. And in this show, Pause, um, which is a kind of variety show, Sam J can really attack issues that they're still figuring out in conversation with other comedians and friends. Um, and so that engaging in a cultural dialogue is not simply for Sam J, but it's for um, a whole group of, of folks, a community, not just African-American uh, comedians, um, but all individuals, they're all part of the social conversation um, and they all have to participate. That's one of the reasons that I said, you know, jokes aren't, or subject matter for jokes, I don't believe should be off limits for anybody because it's all part of a conversation that we should be a part of. How would you guide someone who's not part of a, a certain group, whether racial or gender, how would you guide them in making a joke pertaining to those other a community outside of themselves? As uh, somebody who studies comedy, I think I would actually have better advice for an audience member than a comedian per se, who may be operating on their own level of genius or might be a hack. But as audience members, we can be discriminating we can look at our initial response to a joke um, and then interrogate it to understand um, the circumstances that draw laughter, um, the kinds of a relief we're experiencing from particular jokes, and the implications of our enjoyment. You said a key word, relief. A lot of this conversation throughout the show has brought up themes dealing with mental health and processing and healing. As a scholar of American studies, observing culture, are you seeing changes in attitudes toward mental health, particularly amidst and, and where we are right now in the pandemic? Conversations about mental health have been incredibly important for students that I've taught in the last year. And comedy has been one way to spur discussion about mental health that may have you know, may have facilitated an openness that was challenging under other circumstances. So comedians have addressed mental health for years and years and years. Some of the comedians my students have enjoyed include Gary Gullman, who has a recorded performance called The Great Depression. Um, there's Maria Bamford, who speaks frequently about, uh, frequently about her mental health as well. Um, and there are folks like uh, Tig Notaro, for example, uh, whose famous performance speaks about breast cancer just as it's happening. So in that case, you have a comedy a performance or a comedian who speaks as they're still processing. And I think that license to process through comedy, even if there isn't a resolution, even if there isn't healing, uh, is very appealing to folks who are undertaking the same processes themselves. Yeah, that's a whole new level of vulnerability, like speaking before you even have the words down on paper. Mm -hmm. Another thing you said, you you feel more comfortable offering advice for audiences. I guess I have been thinking, <laughs> personally, I went to my first backyard barbecue a couple days ago, <laughs> and I feel like I'm relearning how to socialize. <laughs> I don't know if this has happened to you. Masks off. Do I hug? Do we shake hands? What do I say? Am I talking too much? And um, if there's any guidance you have or, or anything that American culture, past or present, could, could help us with there, any examples on 
how to relearn this whole thing? That's incredibly tricky as a, a question, but a concern that we're all facing. I just had a an unexpected hug with someone last week and felt really mortified about whether I not or not I did the right thing to hug another vaccinated person. It was a pure accident. Um, as far as comedy is concerned, it is a way of sharing space and connecting with people that doesn't require touch and sometimes having maybe even in a backyard barbecue uh, a joke to break the tension um, as a point of entry to experiences that individuals have shared could be really powerful and, and giving us a level of comfort that we haven't had for a long time. That was Michelle Robinson. She teaches a course on the ethics of stand-up at UNC Chapel Hill. You've been listening to the viral humor episode of The Porch, a production of BPR's news team. And to wrap up this week's show, I thought I'd bring it back home, where the idea began. Pandemic aside, covering news is a tough job. And for my colleagues Matt Bush and Helen Chickering, one small gaffe made during a press conference early on in the pandemic was just the relief they needed to make it through the day. So, Helen, if you remember those heady opening days of the pandemic, opening weeks and months where it was just a daily, like, I don't know. I, I don't even have a word for what the what it was like now, looking back at it. But, I'm going to yeah. quote Dr. Jennifer Mullendore, who's the medical director, Buncombe County medical director. She said she keeps it in the back of her head. So I think all of that stuff is somewhere in the back of my head. But I do remember quiet being alone not you know downtown with you were the only person i think i saw in person for about a month because no one else was working in the station except the air staff and then the guy who had the food truck in the parking lot across the street for maybe a week or two he had a son in new york city sold the best cuban in Asheville, which is that's all that was his calling card that's all i remember yeah and i remember watching him and you could see he you know steam coming out of the window and hand sanitizer and also thinking i'm really hungry but this is safe (laughs) (laughs) right and then he just kind of left after two weeks and it was like he and you were the only people i think i interacted with on a personal level and i was like i just lost my friend and i don't actually remember his name right now but anyway yeah i me too i wonder what happened to him right it was heady opening days. So, but there was this again because we were here by ourselves, and there were the daily. Well, I guess they weren't actually daily, but they were pretty close to daily press conferences coming from either the county or the state, and they were kind of like the Super Bowl every day because you were like, I we have to find out what's going on because I was always get the questions from people within the station, like, well, what's going to happen. And my response is always, we're going to find out together because I don't know. (laughs) Yeah, it was play by play. And you got like a little announcement, coronavirus task force. or here comes an announcement. And so you strapped your seatbelt in and you got ready for it. Right. But just so tense all the time. Like, I don't know what's going to (laughs) happen. I I don't know. And just trying to work with figuring out teams and using landline phones again. I mean, it became the 90s where it was like, we actually have to use the landlines again. We can't always recount on the cell phones to record things and all that sort of stuff. So it was just like, a daily like i don't know it was like orwellian almost in that case it was just like there's today there was no yesterday there'll be no tomorrow and we just have to like just go through today and find out what happens and then try to regurgitate it when we do news and things like that it was crazy it was surreal yeah and those press conferences were 
it was a mix of hearing an announcement and then trying to get a question in. You know, I mean, hosting it, you don't get one in, but everybody was just like fighting to get that question in because everyone had a question unique to your own county, to your region. Mm-hmm. So the one thing I don't think we were doing at the time was laughing <laughs> because we were so tense and just so like trying to make sure we got the most because it wasn't just that we had to get information out like we hold a very high standard of being truth and fact and accurate every day. But it just felt like the level we had to like be accurate here on all these things immediately. There was no like correction later. There was had like you had to be right coming immediately out of the gate. Yeah, and I, I think my anxiety ramped up to like 100 because you were aware of everything that came out of yes. your mouth, right? And especially when you were talking about like anything coronavirus, holy smokes, like God forbid you say something off or a percentage off. Right, because then it's you're wrong and then you have to play catch up. There was no playing catch up, I guess, essentially. It was like you had to be right immediately. But it was the biggest thing was this this incident we're going to talk about and get to here was like I just remember not laughing really for like that first month. Particularly here at work it was just like you got to be on, you got to be ready, you got to put something on the website, you got to do all that. And then this day happened. <laughs> and what was so funny about it after we hear the clip of it was you and I immediately knew what had happened <laughs> and how the guy had had his issue. But if you play it right now. Next question please. Next question is from Bill O'Neill, WXII TV, Winston Salem. Bill, are you there? Let's go ahead to Cole Del Charco from North Carolina Public Radio. What is wrong with our damn? I remember that happening and coming back <laughs> and staring one first with masks. This is when we're getting used to masks and only being able to read everyone's eyes and not mouths, but looking at you through the glass that's behind us and going, being able to communicate you with like, did that really just happen? Did we hear that happen? And you shook your head, and I'm like, okay. Had to finish the rest of the press conference, and then came back in afterwards like, he just dropped the F-bomb live on the air. We obviously could do nothing about it. (laughs) (laughs) What I have a vivid memory of that, unless you were watching along, is there's a live stream. So when we're airing it, we're... I'm actually watching it in the studio, right? So when these question, when that question came in, the camera is on the governor's face. So here it comes. Here goes the f bomb. You know, the poor person who's handling phone calls is trying to get him off the air and get someone else on, and the governor is just stone faced. I mean, kudos right. to him. <laughs> but hearing it, you knew immediately what it was. Thought. When went to the question, thought he was unmuted, but was muted. And then once it was said, well, we're going to the next person, unmuted the phone (laughs) and thought he was muted and just screamed. And all of us just went, feel bad. This is not a criticism of the reporter at all. We're like, we were all there right then and there. Like, yeah, (laughs) us against technology. But I just remember after the press conference had ended, you and I just staring at each other, but in tears laughing because it was a reminder. It's still cool to laugh. It's things are still funny. And I think honestly his what came out of his mouth is what everybody was feeling at the moment yes. because you were just, you know, you were holding on by a shoestring to keep your act together, right? Because you were digesting so much. So when he lost it, you could even see it in the governor's eyes even though he didn't move. It's like, yeah, I get it, buddy. So that's the story of how an F-bomb aired all throughout Western North Carolina. And we laughed instead of being, I don't think the FCC was going to get on us about this one. <laughs> we haven't heard from them yet. That's true. We haven't. We may not want to air this in case they just like come back later on like, you know, it's not us. 
That was BPR News Director Matt Bush speaking with All Things Considered anchor Helen Chickering. And I'm Cass Harrington. That wraps up this week's Porch, but BPR News will still be here for you. And as we continue dancing this awkward tango, masking, unmasking, elbow bumping, Zoom calling, we hope you'll keep laughing too. It's a chance for human connection, and as we've heard, some much needed relief. That's the kind of virus we should all be spreading. Stay human, y'all, and keep in touch. You can send us your stories and ideas anytime at voices at bpr.org. All of the stories you heard on today's viral humor episode can be found at bpr.org. You can also catch previous episodes of The Porch anytime, wherever you find your podcasts, as well as the BPR mobile app. Till next time, I'm Cass Harrington. Thanks for listening.